Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 60 of the Feeling Good podcast. And um, Where are we broadcasting from today? <laughs> I don't know, from uh, somewhere on the cloud. <laughs> the Murrieta Studios. Yeah, that's right, the Murrieta Studios, yes. Um, um, actually, um, we have a couple of uh, mini announcements uh, today. I haven't uh, reminded you, um, David, but uh, today, actually tomorrow to be exact, will be the one-year anniversary of our publishing this podcast on iTunes. No kidding. I so, have no yes. idea. So we have to... Uh, put, put her there. Yeah. Give me five. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And I'm going to... Uh, another neat thing about tomorrow is uh, I'm going to be giving a talk at Stanford from 8, 8, 10 a.m. When, when, when you hear this, it's too late to attend it. This will be Yeah, it'll be Monday. published a couple of days later, yeah. Um, but I'm very excited about it. It'll be a talk kind of for the general public and for uh, Stanford individuals who, who, who are interested. There will probably be some therapists there I think you said well. there was their wellness consortium. Yeah, yeah. and it'll be the Lika Chen Center, uh, kind of a feel, feeling good talk, introduction of CBT and also the new, new team, team therapy. But I'm excited about it because it occurred to me the other night that I first appeared at Stanford as a medical student in 1965. Yeah. And, um, and as you know, for the last uh, 20 years or more, I've been on the voluntary faculty there, and I put in... And, and you've been leading the Tuesday group, and now there's a Thursday, Thursday group, group for so. psychiatric residents, and I've been putting in you know, thousands of hours of time in volunteer work and and teaching these seminars that I, that I give. But this is the first time I've ever been asked to, to speak at Stanford in over 50 years. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> well, it was, it was kind of a shock to the system, but it, I'm kind of a slow learner, I guess. But I'm glad, you know, hope I'm going to try to do a great job. And I'm, I'm well, you know, course very you will. excited I mean, about that, it. That, there's no question there, but I, I just cannot believe that in all these years, they haven't asked you to, to do a presentation. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they felt like your Tuesday group was enough of a of a you know a venue, but uh, I don't know. Well, it it could be, but at any rate, uh, I'm, you know, I'm grateful to have the the experience. I'm pretty pretty excited about it too. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, some up upcoming stuff that people do have time to consider. Oh, we have to talk about the, our new outreach too that we just set, yes, set, set yes. up. Yes, we'll yes. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment. In a second, but I the, at the. Uh, in the middle of next month, in the middle of November 2017, I'll be presenting with Jill Levitt, a clinical psychologist who I teach with at Stanford. We're going to give a three-day workshop. And, and three staff hour. at the Feeling Good Institute. Y yes, absolutely. And we're going to give a, a three-hour workshop on when helping doesn't help at the ABCT convention in San Diego. Yeah. And that'll be on overcoming therapeutic resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And that, we're also going to give a, a six hour workshop uh, on building a better CBT. 
and talk about the, mm-hmm. the evolution of traditional cognitive therapy mm-hmm. to this new new team yeah. therapy. So uh, if, if any of you are thinking about going to, down to San Diego in the middle of November, we'd love to see you at one of those presentations. And then uh, at the end of next month, I'll be up in uh, Calgary, uh, Canada, and also Medicine Hat. At the end of November tw- 2017. <laughs> yeah, tw- yeah, right. And I'll be uh, giving three presentations at Jack Herosi and Associates uh, Trauma Conference, yeah. uh, including, I think it'll be a free evening one for the, for the general public on... Uh, Skills, not pills, for, oh, lovely. for depression. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's neat. And then the <laughs> tools, next, not school, skills, not pills. Right. Yeah, I like and, it. and then the next day, I'll have a one-day workshop in Medicine Hat, which is not too far from from Calgary, on uh, scared stiff, fast, effective treatments mm-hmm. for uh, for anxiety disorders. And then one other thing: in the middle of December, this massive evolution of psychotherapy conference is coming up in Anaheim, and that's. A huge event, thousands of people attend. They have all kinds of big name people there presenting the top top names in the field, uh, and that'll be in Anaheim. And I'm honored to be giving five presentations. I, I believe they are some, you know, just hour long. And also, I'll be doing a, a three hour workshop and a little two hour presentation on fast cures for panic disorder and, and stuff like that. So those are some things. Uh, Things to uh, to keep in mind if yeah. you're looking for CE credits or yeah. want to attend. Um, yeah. hear, hear me in person. So, I, not to bore our listeners with uh, with um, the following details, but uh, we are both kind of excited about our new platform. And I'm, I know people may not know this, but I'm uh, a bit of a technology geek. Um, uh, psychology is a second career for me, and I used to uh, to third be, career. Uh, well. First was pilot. <laughs> <laughs> that was very brief. <clears throat> but um, Well, up until the crash, you were doing well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> After that, I had to uh, retool <laughs> about that. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we migrated our podcast media to a, a platform called uh, Lipsyn. And now we can finally tell how many people download our episodes and where from. And this is really exciting. So... Based on that, I want to give a shout out to our one listener in Myanmar. <laughs> yeah. Whoever. No, we have two in Myanmar. No, no, I think that was two downloads, but one, one listener. Oh, oh one listener. Yeah. Oh, so, I see. uh, shout out to that person, whoever that is. We're very happy to have you listening to us. And, uh, we'll keep an eye on, uh, on the, the growth of our audience in Myanmar. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and also this, this new Libsyn thing, uh, Neil Satin, who has a podcast on relationships, he was the, and I, I did his once and I'm going to yeah. do his again. Yeah. And he's a fantastic guy and he's the one who turned us on to this and, and, uh, and we'll also, we just, I saw Fabrice's fabulous <clears throat> technical skills this morning. We just set it up on all addition, kinds of additional platforms. Now it'll be coming through on YouTube. Yes, well. that, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, you can listen to our podcast now. You can go to David's Facebook page. You can go to David's Twitter account, and you can go to uh, his channel on YouTube. So there's as, a number as well, of ways. as well as my website. Oh, of course, the website. Yeah, that's that's always been true. Yeah, and yeah. then one other thing I want to announce is I have a new uh, radio show. So kind of a radio show, <laughs> and that's Sundays. A live, live feed on Sundays. Yeah, on, yeah, on, Facebook. on, on my uh, Facebook page. I think that comes in on my. I can't remember if it's my personal or my 
public Facebook page, one one or the other. So if it's your personal, that means they need to friend you? Maybe. I'm not okay, sure. I, I don't know. Not we'll sure. have to figure that out. And... Yeah. But at any rate, it's a Q&A, and it, it's either a half an hour or an hour, depending on how many questions they are. But I've done it, uh, I think, two weeks in a row, something like that, and it's it's gone surprisingly well. So if you're interested, uh, that's West Coast time, California time, 2.30 p.m. On, on Sundays. I won't be doing it this Sunday, though, because I'm flying to the East Coast for... Uh, for, for, for workshops on on the relation mm-hmm. on relationships and it's all your fault uh, workshop it's not my fault <laughs> all right it's so, never our fault it's always someone else's fault <laughs> exactly all right on to our uh, our topic for today and uh, we've been um, moving uh, away for a while from uh, techniques and and I know that uh, people are kind of interested in learning new techniques and you have this uh, this list of uh, you know what you call fifty ways to untwist your thinking. Those are like your your core uh, cognitive techniques, and uh, you uh, you selected today to talk about one called self monitoring. Right, right, and uh, that's a really interesting one. Um, uh, I think it's isn't it based like on the uh, Thorndike effect or one of those. Effects I, I can't even it remember. It could be. I don't know what the Thorndike effect is. I've heard of it, but yeah. you, you, what is the but Thorndike effect? Well, you know, when, when you know that somebody is, is going to check up on you or, oh. or watching you, your, your behavior changes. Oh, so we're on better behavior because we're on podcast type of thing. Exactly. If that's yeah. an example, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that, that's a good one. See, uh, you, know, sure. you, you stop you know, uh, dropping uh, curse words uh, when uh, you have a microphone in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> or perhaps you should. I don't always remember to follow that rule. So, but anyways, you yeah. want to tell us about uh, self-monitoring? Well, it, it was one of the earliest cognitive uh, therapy techniques, and it kind of ties in with uh, mindfulness meditation in, in a funny way. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think are the strengths and perhaps the weaknesses of, of this approach. And I have two uh, really exciting uh Vignettes too that okay. bring this technique to life, but the idea behind it was 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 very simple. Was was that when you're you're depressed, you have a lot of negative thoughts, yeah. and we've talked about this extensively on the podcast. Like uh, uh, Tuesday night in the group, I did live work with a uh, one of the participants who you know let us u- use her name Rhonda, and and she had been uh, teaching and got some feedback after her teaching that that on a feedback forum like the ones we always use and she got all upset and and started you know thinking that uh, you know she was screwed up and she, you know she shouldn't have made whatever mistake she made and that yeah. people would be judging her and I'm no good and I'm a nobody and all I can do is care for people, like I have no leadership skill, whatever, I don't have the exact number, but and all these thoughts were going through her mind, and she believed them 85 90%, and she'd had a couple of weeks of intense negative feelings, similar maybe to ones you've had at times, I know they're similar yeah. to, to ones I've frequently had, feeling anxious and ashamed and kind of angry and inadequate and worthless and inferior and helped her turn those thoughts around and it was just a blow away session it was just so warm she brought so much to the table and and we all just kind of got euphoric at, at the end and maybe we'll try to publish that with her permission if the audio was good enough as a podcast but the bottom line is we have these negative thoughts 
that that cause cause us to 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 feel horrible and the whole thing of cognitive therapy was how to help people get rid of those thoughts when you're anxious you you have the same thing you have these negative thoughts coming into your mind that that make you anxious and and a, a, a very common example of that that probably a lot of listeners can identify with is uh, when you get symptoms of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, yeah. like you might put a letter in the mailbox and then you start telling yourself, oh, what if it didn't go down? Or, you know, you, what if this and what if that? And then you go back, you start checking, yeah. you're looking in, in there over and over again. And so we developed all of these techniques to, to help individuals somehow crush these negative thoughts, get rid of these negative thoughts. And one of the techniques was just called uh, self, self-monitoring. And, and the way it started out was that we told patients to wear a rubber band around their wrist. Yeah. And that whenever you have that negative thought, instead of dwelling on it and getting all upset, you, you just tell yourself, well, that's a negative thought, and you snap that rubber band on your wrist. Sounds like a negative uh, reinforcement. Yeah, that. that type of thing. And then just let it let go of it and, and, and go on with your life. And then it went to a slightly more sophisticated level that I told patients to, to get a wrist clicker, like what golfers use mm-hmm. to keep track of their yeah. score. And there's two kinds. One you wear on your waist and one is just like it they used to cost 10 bucks. They probably still cost about that. You, you wear it on your wrist. It's just like a plastic band and then a dial. And each yeah. time you click the dial, the number goes up one. Yeah. And so then I would tell people to uh, count your negative thoughts during the day. And then at the end of the day, you can put the number on your uh, calendar or some keep track of it, a written record and, and re- reset it to zero. Mm-hmm. And then I would tell patients uh, to to count your negative thoughts all day long. Then when you have a negative thought, again, instead of dwelling on it, just click it and then go on with whatever you were you were doing. Uh-huh. And so you might have like 90 negative thoughts at the end of the day, and you put down 90 and set it back to zero. And I told patients, agree to do this for at least four weeks because usually it doesn't work until the fourth week for some reason. Mm-hmm. And then what some people find is suddenly in, in the fourth week, the negative thoughts start going down, down, and then mm-hmm. disappear, and then the person is, is, is symptom-free. Well, the, the, the good thing about it, it's, it's a very simple technique. The bad thing about it is it almost never helped anybody. It, it rarely was, was, was effective in, in my experience. But occasionally well, it was. What was the, the principle behind it? Why the drop after the fourth week? You know, I, I think I'd have to say my answer to most questions. I, I don't. I don't really know. I see. One, one one way to think about it. Uh, I mean, it might be what you were saying—the Hawthorne effect—but that's not an explanation. That's just a description of what uh-huh. happens. Uh, but um, the uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not much of a meditator. I know you are, and millions of people are so gung ho now on, mm-hmm. on meditation. Uh, but I think what little I know about meditation is, is that it's it's you, you you're setting you're focusing your mind and on this one thing could be your breathing or the word om or you know whatever it happens to be and then you find that your mind will drift off mm-hmm. 
And then instead of attending to what your mind is drifting off to, you just note that and then gently yeah, bring, you bring it, it back. back. Yeah. Yeah. And so this could be viewed as meditation in daily life. Yeah. That your life becomes your meditation. Right, okay. But then we have these interrupting thoughts, like right now I'm having fun interacting with you. Uh, and so this brings us into the here and now. <clears> then <throat> the here and now can be a pretty phenomenal experience. But then we'll get distracted and think, oh, I have to speak at the Li Keqen Center at Stanford tomorrow. What if I screw up? And then I'll get all anxious, and that distracts me from the current moment. So you could yeah. think of it on... On that on that basis, but I'll I'll give you a couple of examples. Yeah, uh, that maybe yeah. maybe you can speculate and have some ideas about how it works. One person who was very helpful too was an eye doctor who who came to me, and his his work was an, he was an ophthalmologist was to <clears throat> give people eye examinations all all day long. Mm -hmm. You know, see if they needed surgery or glasses or you know if their eyes were in good health. He was a, a single man. He, he lived with his mother. He was a little bit of a lonely individual. But all day long, you know, he would have this thought that, that upset him when he was checking people's eyes. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had a floater in your eye, Fabrice, you see like some... Yeah, when, when I pay attention, I, I see them, you know. Yeah, and it's, it's natural. Most people see like this little dot going across your yeah. visual field. And I, I play with that sometimes. I can see if I can make it move the way I want, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, exactly. And, um, but occasionally, in rare occasions, people with diabetes, diabetes it, it can become a sign of retinal detachment requiring oh, laser yeah. surgery. Yeah. Uh, well, this fellow would see a floater, and he didn't have diabetes. There was nothing wrong with his retinas. But he would then have the thought, what if I'm going blind? Yeah, and this thought would cause anxiety. This is very typical of uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And then he would uh, give himself an eye examination between patients. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd, he'd he'd squeeze one in, and and so typically during a, a day he'd give himself ten or twelve eye examinations be, between <laughs> scheduled <laughs> patients. Exactly. And he was just consumed with this with this negative thought. And then weekends, he would binge on it. He would go to his office and just spend 15 hours giving himself eye exams over and over again. Mm -hmm. He would give himself an exam. Oh, everything's fine. He'd check something out. I don't know how he's checking his own eyes, but he, you know, vision tests. And, and then he would feel good, but then he would think, but He'd see another floater, and he would say, "Well, maybe this one is a retinal detachment." Yeah. And, it, and it was very sad and pathetic. And so all yeah. he was doing with his life was just giving that himself really all-consuming. Yeah, as OCD can sometimes be, yeah. like with Howard Hughes, who you know locked himself into a room at the top of some hotel in Las Vegas and taped all the cracks and everything because he was so afraid of of contamination. It's yeah. almost like a form of mental cancer when it becomes yeah. uh, very severe. And this fellow was almost almost at that level. And so I, I used... Oh, I can see a floater right now. <laughs> yeah, well, you might be going blind. <laughs> well, I might, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I used a number of techniques that weren't helpful. I, you know, I do a recovery circle, and in the middle I put the thought, I might be going blind, yeah. and then there's arrows coming out of yeah. the recovery circle, and each arrow points to, like, identify the distortions and empathy and agenda setting and double standard technique and 
uh, you know, examine the evidence and things like that. Uh, and these techniques weren't helpful. And then I came to self-monitoring mm -hmm. and also the technique called response prevention. Right. And so what I told him is what I wanted him to do is for four weeks to, to, to wear this wrist counter on his wrist. And every time he had the thought, I might be going blind, but, you know, when he had a soft loader and told himself, gosh, what if I'm going blind, to click it on his wrist so the number would yeah. go up by one, and then let go of the thought and get back to what he was doing. And I told him, in addition, he, he had to agree not to give himself any eye examinations at all during this uh, four-week yeah. period of time. And I explained to him initially this would make him very anxious because he's giving up something he's addicted to. Giving himself an eye test <clears throat> reduced his anxiety. And, and so that improvement in his anxiety became addictive. That, that's of course, how yes. OCD works. So I don't, once you don't give in to that impulse for the first few days, you'll get more intensely anxious. But, but if you just keep refusing to give in to the compulsion, the compulsion to check your eyes, eventually that compulsion will, will go away. So he agreed to do this, and, and the first few days, uh, he I think he had 70 thoughts that he was going blind on day mm -hmm. one, and then like 85 on day two, and went up to 96 on day three because he got better and better at, at noticing And noticing them because, I mean, he probably has, has had a lot more than that. He just yeah. didn't notice them, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then um, they plateaued between, you know, 80 and 100 for, for three weeks. Yeah. And then in the third week, uh, one day it went down like to suddenly it was 51, and the next day was like uh, 28, and the next day was 12, and the next day was like 4, and the next day was 1, and the next day was 0. And at that point he was pretty much cured of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Yeah. So that was one person uh, for for whom the, this, this approach was was very effective. Now, a colleague from UCLA, and his name went out of my mind, he wrote a book on, on OCD. Mm -hmm. He was the guy who did the visual imaging, showed that cognitive therapy over 12 weeks could cause changes in brain patterns. I mean, like the... the the uh, you know uh, what do you call it um, MRI functional MRI okay oh I see yes yeah. that 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 type. I'm trying to think of his name but I thought maybe you would remember his no oh, well at any rate he wrote some book on OCD and that this was uh, I believe the only technique in his book okay uh, but he what he had a different name for it and you can also view it as reattribution he just told his OCD patients when you have these obsessive thoughts like I better check the mail or I better check the stove or the house will burn down just reinterpret the thought and tell yourself oh that's just my OCD right and then drop it and, and move on to something else um, so that's the, the, the same t technique the the only difference here is I would I use fifty or hundred techniques because this one often doesn't work, right? And we've got tons of other huge, powerful methods for for treating all forms of anxiety, including OCD. But this was a patient for whom for whom it just happened to 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 do the do the trick. And one thing to point out is that uh, you know even a, a particular technique that in your experience sometimes I mean often doesn't work. Well, the times when it does work, 
is very important to absolutely. to have it available, but because for some people that may be just the ticket. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> now another thing about these techniques that I've developed or learned or refined is that I don't think of them as techniques. I think of them as metaphors for how people change their lives. So instead of 50 techniques, you have 50 metaphors. Or, okay, or, or, so I'm, I'm not sure I'm following you Well, uh, see, uh, you can just think of self-monitoring not as clicking things with your wrist, yeah. but as a concept that by tracking things it can be a way to change your life. And I'll give you another example of how it changed somebody's life, but it was done in a radically different way. Uh, and 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 the reason I'm 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 saying this is is to loosen up our listeners' creative thinking because once you learn one of these techniques uh, and see it working for someone, then you can often think of many other creative ways to to use it. So it's still categorized as self-monitoring, but the details are, and the context it, it becomes radically different. So here's another example of of, of self-monitoring that was uh, surprisingly effective for someone. In Philadelphia, I was uh, supervising a clinical psychologist, PhD, very bright, very lovely woman, who raised the question during the supervision, if, if depression is really due to <clears throat> some chemical imbalance in the brain or some problem in the brain, how, how could cognitive therapy help? Yes, and, fair question. Yeah, and I said, well, <clears throat> tell me more what, why you're asking that that important question. She said, well, I'm treating a man who's a carpenter and he had a stroke and, um, and the uh, expression of his stroke is what's called pseudo-bulbar palsy. Okay. And uh, strokes can cause it. Uh, you can see it in a variety of other d disorders of the central nervous system where there's actual uh, brain damage. Uh, uh, but but uh, in his case, it was caused by thousands of microscopic hemorrhages in the deep structures of, of, of the brain. Yeah. And, and what pseudo-bulbar palsy is, and it's been getting a lot of attention uh, recently, uh, in medical uh, email CE programs and things like that <clears throat> is because the there's two uh, symptoms. One is uncontrollable sobbing and one is uncontrollable laughing. Hmm. And so this is a form of depression that's actually caused, we know with 100% certainty, by brain damage, actual tissue damage. Yeah. yeah. And so what happens is if there's the slightest little sad thing that happens, the person will start sobbing uncontrollably. And then if the fun, just the minor little funny thing happens, they start laughing un uncontrollably. Yeah. And she said, so how could I use, you know, cognitive therapy to help this patient of mine whose depression is actually caused by hemorrhages, brain tissue damage. And I said, well, always, you know, we don't treat problems, we don't treat diagnoses, we don't treat disorders, we, we treat human beings. And I would love to supervise you in, in his treatment, but we need an agenda. We want a specific moment when he was upset where this was causing problems for him, and, and maybe even fill out a daily mood log. What was the event? What were the emotions? What were the negative thoughts? The same playbook that we always use in, in treating anyone who's depressed or anxious. So she 
came back to the next week's supervision session, and the upsetting event for him was uh, playing poker with friends. Mm -hmm. And apparently uh, he, he was retired, and the thing he'd always loved most in life was getting together with his buddies and, and playing poker. And he had all of these intense negative feelings, uh, shame and frustration and anger and anxiety and inadequacy. And apparently what was happening was, was that when he would get a really good hand, uh, he'd start laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> That's not very good. <laughs> and then when he'd get a bad hand, he'd start sobbing uncontrollably. I don't know if you would call that a tell. It's more like a shout. <laughs> yeah. So he was having a lot of trouble playing poker, and he was also, you know, ashamed and embarrassed, and he wasn't doing very well. He must not have well. been winning much. <laughs> and, and so his negative thought was, I just can't control my feelings, my emotions. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, let's look at the distortions. And again, it's all or nothing thinking, black or white thinking. And I said the issue here is it's not that he can't control his emotions at all, but he can't control his emotions as much as usual. And and so what we could do as, as a technique, we, we could tell him to to buy a stopwatch and keep it in his pocket and keep a little journal so he can take take notes. And every time he has the sudden urge to start crying or laughing, reach in his pocket and turn on the stopwatch. And then try, although he can't control his emotions completely, see if he could defer, postpone the crying and laughing for maybe uh, one second or three seconds, or maybe he could work his way up to, to five seconds. So he could, instead of thinking about his emotions in an all or nothing way, he could think about in shades of gray, and it also could become like an athletic challenge to see if he could increase the number of seconds. So right. each time, you know, then once he cries and laughs, he clicks the stopwatch again and then records what day of the week, what time of day, and, and how long he deferred the emotional outburst. Well, this appealed to him because he had been a track star in high school, and so he knew very well what it was to, to get in shape, to improve your time through repeated, you know, effort and mm -hmm. running and, you know, improving your, 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 your data. So the, the technique also helped him, perhaps on the cognitive level, by changing the way he was thinking about this crime instead of like an all or nothing defeat as as an athletic challenge, something he could work at and, and, and get better at. And so the first week, he was able to, to defer, initially just for a few seconds, and then he had one episode where he, he got it up to 15 seconds, and he was, you know, very, very excited about that. And by the end of the second week, he was able, then in the beginning of the second week, then he got to where he could defer 30 seconds and 45 seconds. And then he got get better at it. Yeah. yeah, a minute. And then by the end of the second week, he could defer his emotional outbursts in, in, indefinitely. Hmm. And, and of course, his, his depression di disappeared at that, at that point. So yeah. that, that was another example of, of, of self-monitoring. And then another, yet, and we can talk about that in a second, but one other thing I wanted to mention is, is that uh, we also do uh, self-monitoring in our podcasts so that we want to get the data. How many downloads are we getting and find out? Which yeah, that's, that, well, you know, it's 
feedback in a way. Yeah, know? yeah, quantitative feedback yeah. in order to to improve to improve your life, and also then I, I plug this into how we do team therapy in a big way because we now have patients measure their symptoms, the severity of depression, anxiety, and anger and other feelings, if you want, at the start and end of every therapy session. And the therapist looks at it at the end of the session and can see how much he or she has improved in every single session with every single patient. And that data, that self-monitoring, that quantitative feedback is what has led to these amazing, to me, amazing breakthroughs that we now call team therapy, where, at least in my own practice, I can often see a complete elimination of symptoms in a single therapy session because I'm measuring and, and keeping track. Whereas early in my career, when I didn't do, do this, I just did it once a week, it was better than, than, than nothing. Uh, but, but now we have really refined uh, self-assessment tests for, for therapists, and it can uh, dramatically transform your practice. So I, I now think of it as, as something that, that can be tremendously beneficial for, for patients and for therapists, and, and that crossover with with meditation might might be of interest uh, to listeners who are who are focused on and excited about uh, meditation yeah and you know it, it occurs to me that uh, feedback loops are, are a natural process you know we, we have feedback yeah. loops in the universe yeah. at all levels yeah and so it makes sense to add this to you know our human created processes so that they they get better over time Ab- absolutely uh, d- d- is there a parallel? I mean, you meditate with meditation, or am I off on the limb there? Well, meditation, I'd say meditation is a little bit different, but I'm thinking about more, you know, uh, natural processes like, you know, when when I get sick, then I I, I uh, uh, try to, you know, stay in bed and, and don't do as much until I get better. My body tells me, you know, don't overexert yourself when I'm, you know, uh, when I haven't eaten, my body says you're hungry, and so I, and the feedback is I get food. All those things are, are natural processes, and they allow us to to function. And then, how does self monitoring fit into that framework? So self monitoring is is uh, you intentionally creating feedback for yourself. So you're creating the feedback that by noticing what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're thinking. Right. And as you do this, you have a reaction to the feedback, which makes you, at some level, change your process. And you see the change in your process by the next loop of self-monitoring. So the feedback, the quantitative feedback, uh, can, can change the way we think, feel, and behave, yeah. if, if, if we're open yeah. to that. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I wanted to ask you, um, have you published your list of uh, 50 ways anywhere besides your ebook? Well, in my book, When Panic Attacks, there's 40 of them, the ones oh. that have to do with anxiety disorders. Okay. And, and when I publish my new book, uh, Feeling Feeling Great, uh, I'll probably have all 50 of them. Thanks for that suggestion. I hadn't thought of that, but yes, I'll well, what put I'm wondering them in there. is yeah. if you could uh, maybe publish the list on your website or maybe even in this uh, podcast show notes. And people can look at the list and see which ones they're interested in hearing more about. Well, definitely, at the very least, put the list of the one-page list of the techniques, the 50 yeah. techniques, and then people, that's a great idea, can call in and say, well, hey, you haven't done this technique, right, you haven't exactly. done that, because yeah. we need to be nudged a little bit. I know. Well, uh, we're, you know, we're doing our own ship here, yeah. <laughs> driving our own ship, and so... Uh, right. 
we so we'll get we, some self monitoring. Exactly, we yeah. need the feedback from our listeners to tell us you know what they want to hear. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was great to yeah. hang out with you uh, at the Murrieta Studios the Murrieta this studio. morning. And I hope <laughs> On the cloud. We we hope that people uh, pe- people enjoyed this. All right, thanks, David. Talk to you next time. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.